While I spoke to some people whose experiences reached back to the very early Inari days at Macquarie Island, Ron Han's experience reaches further back than anyone else I recorded over the festival weekend, kicking off in 1967 at Wilkes Station, built by the USA during the International Geophysical Year 1957. Australia inherited Wilkes in 1959. The base ceased operations in 1969 with the opening of Casey Station, so I was stoked to meet someone that had Wilkes experience under their belt. Speaking now with Ron Han at the Antarctic Festival in Hobart in 2018. Ron, what was your role with the Antarctic Division, or ANARI at the time? Base electrician, um, Wilkes 1967, uh, Macquarie 1970. And was that a fulfilment of a long-term ambition? Oh yeah. <laughs> so what, what first got you interested in Antarctica? bloke called Vic Morgan, or Dizo, that did the 63 Travis, I think it was 63 Travis, to Bostock. And he lived alongside of where I was living at the time, and I, I saw his slides, and I was gone. I was suckered. So what, what age did that kick in? That kicked in at about 20. At 21, I applied, and I got the Dear Ron letter. So the next year, I applied again. And as I found out later, I actually missed out, but by the time they sent the letters out, someone had pulled out. So I was, I made the grade. For, for, that was in 66 for 67. And the base electrician role is crucial. Without the Keep the lights on. Keep the lights on. And without, without diesel power and electricity, there's not much is going to happen at, a, at an Antarctic base. Absolutely. The, you know, the, the, diesel, the diesels, or diesel, depending on where you are, uh, and the electrician have to really work closely together, make sure you, you do it. How you often, it how often in, in that era were you facing sort of life and death faults with the system? Uh, we have one main fault that had been there for years at uh, Wilkes, um, and that turned out to be a mechanical one. It took me about eight months through the year to realise all I had to do was file off a burr in a brush holder, uh, and it, the, the power just simply stopped because a brush holder on the exciter was losing contact because the brush was digging into a burr. And when we sold that, we didn't have any power failures. And the other thing that you had to watch out for was that was the old American base. So they had very high currents, low voltage and very high currents. And so you'd quite often walk into the powerhouse and uh, one of the caterpillars would be sitting there dancing, sitting on its original packing case base and, and it would be overloaded and, and there's this gem set just dancing up and down with, with such high current you could just start at one end of the base walk right around the base just switch off lights and you walk back in and it's humming it was easy <laughs> so the american base was at 110 at 110 and two, 220 between phases you mentioned that you were part of part of the traverse uh, you know, Vic uh, oh, Morgan did. I did a traverse, yes, in August to, to uh, depot fuel for the summer travels. Um, that was another thing altogether. <laughs> what sort of vehicles were uh, doing the horse We work? had the old D4 Caterpillars. One was uh, turboed, one was not. Uh, we gave them names in those days. One was Babalachi, the other one was uh, Rock Island Line. So. Uh, we took them out, we got blizzed in for a week, we had all the fuel on board on these uh, sleds and uh, we just sat there for a week. When we restarted we uh, didn't heat them enough and so the oil couldn't travel through the filter so we blew one of them up and had to leave it there, got permission to go on with one and then eventually got to the site where we had to build the platform and put the 44 gallon drums of fuel on. It's just a wooden platform that we're building. Um, and we realised, well, before we got there, we tried to move and we got up high enough to the point where the poor old D4 had the power, but the, the grouser plates would bog because the snow was too soft at that height to carry the load. So we had to split the load, but we made a mistake. We left the uh, trail, the, 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 the sled there, that had the reheater to start the engine. When we left, where we'd been uh, blizzed in, 
It was a beautiful day, and by the time we got to where we needed to go, it was a blizzard. So we then had to come back and get the heater for the engine because we couldn't shut our tractor down. We'd never started again. So we did, and the diesel mechanic and myself sat in the cabin, the heater wasn't working, the blues was hitting the windscreen, you couldn't see through that. The door had to be open, and we stuck our head out the side and tried to follow our track in the snow. You could last for about 15 minutes, and you'd, your eyes would get gritty as they started to freeze over. So you then had to breathe on them and let the other guy take over. We'd get lost, we'd get, hop out and find the tracks. Once we were going the wrong direction, we realised because the wind was coming from the wrong way. We eventually got back to, to pick up the, the sleds that we needed. And it got dark by then. And that was when we realised that when you're going to tractor and you've got headlights on and you've got tractor treads, browser plate tracks in the snow, that forms ridges and hollows. And when you've got a side light on it, you've got this bright light and a, a darkness behind it. And it was like driving down a neon highway. We didn't have to stick our head out the window. We didn't have to do anything. But suffice it to say, we got back safely. We built the platform. We put the uh, drums on there and we managed to get back quite safely in good nick. That's the second near run story I've heard today and it's, it's, it gives me the willies hearing those sorts of things. <laughs> the, you mentioned the, the heater that you'd left behind. What was the process for heating an engine up to an operating temperature? We didn't have any sun heaters, so we couldn't hook up a gem set and, and heat it up by heating up the oil in the sun. They weren't, simply weren't fitted to the tractors then. So we used the Herman Nelson, which is a, a petrol-fired heater, and you put a big jumbo cover over the engine and a big trunk from the heater to that jumbo cover, and, and it's minimum two hours that you've got to run it. You've got to get that oil uh, warmed up, as we found out. <laughs> and that's a long process with such a large block. And oh, it, it really boils down to the fact we've been stuck for a week in the blizzard wanting to get on with doing what we had to do, and we were impatient. That, that, that's really the crux of the story. We, we said, oh, it must be enough, it must be enough. We're standing around waiting for the heaters to heat the engine. You know? So we, we were impatient, and we, we got caught out. <laughs> so you could, there's lots of stories like it. Well, I've been asking people for their most inspiring story and their most harrowing story, if that's not your most harrowing story, I, I perhaps don't want to hear what it is because that. But yeah, you can, you're welcome to think about that and come back to me if you want the, the no, most inspiring well, moment. I, I guess uh, the other one that's worth mentioning to you is, is the. Um, I, I went down with a very open mind, and I still have absolutely no regrets about anything that, that went on, except one thing, one thing. We went down in Tarladan. And, and um, we got stuck in the pack ice. Nelladan had been stuck for a month. We were stuck for a fortnight. The east wind from the US came in and, and, and got us out, freed us up, and we were able to, to sail into Wilkes. We sailed in over what is known as uh, Iceberg Alley because it's a, a shallow section of sea. Uh, close to the base, which you can actually see it from the base, where all of these icebergs are grounded. And we sailed almost within touching distance of these icebergs in bright sunlight. Now you're thinking about film, camera, and how, whether you're going to make the amount of film that you've got last the entire year. We've been stuck for a fortnight in the pack ice, we've taken more photos than we expected to. So I'm will I or won't I? And some guy said to me, don't worry about it, Ron. When we leave, you'll be able to get the same shots. Well, I can tell you, the day we left was the most rotten day you've ever seen, and we never went near those icebergs. So that's my only regret about the whole thing down there. I, I managed uh, two years ago here to talk to Dr. Jeff Ayton, who's the uh, Arctic Medical Officer with the NRE. Uh, with AAD, the division at the moment. And he asked me what, what I'd had done medically. Uh, and I, uh, I had to tell him, and I said, well, look, you ever heard of the game Bottles? 
where you or anything else, but but generally with bottles. I said, where you get two bottles, you put your toes on a line, you go out horizontal, you put one bottle under your arm, and and you see how far you can stand the other bottle up. Well, I was doing that, but I was, I'd been doing it for years with Southwark bottles out of South Australia. I had no idea that VB bottles had a very thin glass wall, and the bottle that was under me collapsed and carved my hand up, cut the nerve and all that. So the doctor sobered himself up and got me into the surgery, called all the guys in and they, they fixed it up. The nerve was, they couldn't get the nerve, so that was still cut. And months later, they did the same thing again and opened it up and joined the nerve. It took about two years for me to get feeling back into my little finger. And I've still got a bit of scar tissue there if I bump it. Uh, uh, bumps, uh, and that's 50 years ago. <laughs> so that's the the other thing that happened there's lots of other stories I love that phrase the doctor sobered himself up <laughs> I'd love to know how they do it but he did this was about two o'clock in the morning uh, yeah. <laughs> and clearly everyone here this weekend is passionate about Antarctica so those trips that, that propelled yeah. you into the Inari Club and well it's, it's led me on into I'm, I'm now the uh, president of the South Australian branch, and I'm a, I've been uh, I've been I'm in, into my fifth year with that, and I'm a, a member, ordinary member of the National Council, and I'm, if I get voted in tomorrow, I'm in that in for my fifth year uh, with that as well, and I'm loving it. Uh, the, the, the things that happen, the people that come and talk to you, you heard us talking about the larks when Nella Dan uh, sank, and, and there's footage that we've just seen and. All, all this sort of thing, and it keeps coming. There's all sorts of things, different things happen, and I'm the go-to person naturally enough in South Australia. So, good things mainly, some bad things, yeah, uh, but, but, which I can't talk about because some of them are quite quite bad relationship-wise, and, 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 and you, you just got to. Make sure that you, when when you give someone, when someone wants a contact, you contact that person and let them do the contact back to who it is that wants it. Yeah. Because if you don't, you you you're giving away the person's privacy. And you can't afford to do that. I've seen some big problems arising from that sort of information mismanagement in and, other organisations. And it really boils down to. Uh, common sense, doing it the way that I've learned to do it and, and, and uh, making sure that, that the uh, person's privacy doesn't get invaded. But yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, I, I have a lot of fun. There was only Brian, uh, Trevor Luff, Brian Harvey, Trevor Luff and myself that came down with all this and, and did it for the initial year, two years ago. Um, are you and Matt, see, Trevor's down, there he is, yeah. Um, we're all here again <laughs> this year. The uh, meeting helps, the, the holding the meeting and the AGM here, and so, as does the Macquarie uh, reunion anniversary. Peter Reed spent two summers and a winter at Casey as a plant inspector, later taking on deputy station leader, search and rescue chief, and senior diesel roles. Uh, what's your association with Antarctica? Uh, I was at Casey in 1991, two summers in the winter there, and I was at Macquarie in 77. And 15 month deployments? Uh, was, it was, I did the extra summer in, uh, in Casey um, because they were a bit short. And uh, the, it was a normal 12 months at uh, Macquarie. And was that the fulfilment of a long-term ambition or was it something that crept up on you? Or? No, well, it was a long-term ambition to go south and I thought I'd get to the continent the first time, but it was the second time. And what was your role on these bases? Uh, I was a plan inspector uh, at Casey, deputy station leader, and um, SAR chief and anything else that we wanted to do. 
And uh, I was the, what was my title at Macquarie was uh, Senior Diesel Mechanic, I think, because I, I was by myself in that sort of field. I looked after power station, anything mechanical. And, and where did you apprentice into, into the mechanic role? Uh, I worked for a long time with the uh, Irrigation Water Supply Commission on uh, building dams and uh, maintaining equipment on dam sites and stuff like that in, in Queensland. And what training was needed to adapt that skill set to uh, Antarctic operations? Well, we, again, on the building, uh, working in the irrigation and the water industry, you've got everything from pumps to bulldozers to cranes, anything uh, required to build a dam. And like conveyor systems and anything else. I looked after the, uh, the workshops, uh, all sorts of maintenance and uh, building material too. And how did working on those machines at low temperatures, what, what was different oh, in that we paper? We didn't get very well. We did at Warwick. Leslie Dam had got down there below zero quite often. But uh, no, it was the remote area working, I suppose. Uh, used to doing things. If something broke, you fix it. I've been asking people if they can put into words their most inspiring moment in the far south and their most harrowing moment in the far south. And you're welcome to think about it and come back to it later. I've got other other questions I can come to. Um, well, the most inspiring, I suppose, is one of it's its remoteness. Um, the uh, fact you, you do make uh, good friends, you rely on each other uh, for just about everything. Uh, you have to work together. It's uh, and the the remoteness of it, I suppose. Uh, the fact that not a lot of people want to go there or ever get there, and uh, so you, you need a. A mindset which says, you know, something's broken, I can fix it. Without diesel engines, nothing much happens in Antarctica. What percentage of an expedition's cargo comprises fuel for the diesel engines? Well, the cargo, you'd have to... Well, you've got to have, particularly on the continental stations, normally have two years supply of fuel so if the, if the ship can't get in because of ice conditions to discharge your fuel and you've got to be able to uh, you know survive it's very it's uh, very um, you know, very necessary though with with Mawson and the the uh, uh, air driven uh, you know electricity that they've got there now they've had for some time uh, that helps it certainly reduces the amount of fuel you need to what sort of wildlife encounters do you recall from your time on the basis there's not a lot of, uh, on the ice except in the summer uh, but Macquarie is a, you know a bird watchers animal type paradise really everything comes to Macquarie because the only only land around for a long way. The birds, the uh, the albatrosses that were nesting there. Uh, when I was there in '77, we had a, a biologist from Queensland University who was doing research on Ellie seals, and I assisted him because it was a, uh, when he was uh, take, uh, killing basically two seals a month and taking samples of all sorts of things like. Uh, fat samples, blood samples, and all that sort of thing. I used to do the, the uh, what they'd been eating. I'd do the guts part of the song. So, because they were large animals, two to three tons each, and uh, if you wanted to roll them over, you had to use a tractor. And what what does an elephant seal eat? What were you finding in the guts? Uh, krill and small fish, but mostly krill and. Uh, um, like calamari, squid. 
the krill really is the the driver. Oh, it's yes, just incredible. Without a doubt. After the, after rough weather, you'd find them, uh, particularly at Macquarie, you'd find them washed up on the beach. If you know on the onshore side, where, where obviously they'd uh, uh, you know they got into shallow water and, the, and it gets really rough there with a the strong wind, and you'd find them on the beach. You'd find a lot of crab bits too. The uh, uh, after the rough weather. Were you operating during the, the dog era? No, just towards at the end of it. Well, it was just past the end. They didn't have dogs. The dogs had been taken off when I, when I went there. And that's a sad story because the dogs didn't last long once they got to Minnesota. They went to Minnesota? Yeah, and they, they, they weren't uh, immune to anything. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that, that was the problem. So they just got diseases that other dogs would have yep. had immune responses to. Yes, because they'd been so long in, a, in an environment where there was no basically disease. Oh, it was a big political thing. Can't have the dogs on there, they might attack the seals. Thank you very much for your time. Secretary of the Inari Club, Robert Nash, first went south as a meteorological observer. You might have heard Ian Tuhill recommending I catch up with Rob as one of the most experienced dog handlers during our discussion of his time on the light amphibious resupply cargo vehicles, and a sound recommendation that turned out to be, as you'll hear. The stories just start coming out. So I'm speaking to Rob Nash at the Antarctic Festival in Hobart 2018. Rob, what's your connection with the continent? I first went down as a Met observer in 1975, and... One thing about 1975, the officer in charge was Lem Macy, that's Lewis Edward Macy, and he was one of the original party at Heard Island in 1947, and he was also in the original party when they opened up Mawson in 54. And he was having, he went down there for his last trip, he had his 64th birthday down there, and he uh, led the tractor train out to Mount King, in Enderby Land, which was a, that was quite a long trip and we hadn't been into that area before, so he was opening up new ground even when he was 64. So I always think that I was lucky to be down there so close to the original history. And that, that first trip to Heard Island resonates with me. I, I live close to Point Cook, where the museum um, licensed aircraft maintenance engineers restored the snow, snow goose, the the supermarine right. walrus that was part of that expedition that did it one survey flight before it bowled down the beach in a storm and wrapped itself in its own wings. So um, was was heading to Antarctica part of a, a long-term ambition for you? Um, it, it just sort of happened in a way. When I was young, uh, I used you, the Sun newspaper used to always put a picture on the front you know, Phil organised it with his publicity. Every time the boat came back, he'd show the new the expeditioners getting off. So I always remember seeing that. And then uh, when I'd finished high school, I, I didn't know what to do until my mother showed me a advertisement for a weather observer, which sent you all around Australia. And when I did the interview for the weather observer, the um, head of the training school said, do you know you can go down to Antarctica? Do you want to go? So I said, yes. <laughs> and I did my training, did a year in Darwin, and in 75 I was down at Mawson. And can you just describe what the role involved in that era? In that era, uh, things were um, less automated. So we were releasing balloons uh, release a balloon at, in the morning at 5 o'clock and then we do another one at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Those were the two flights. The morning flight had a, did an upper air um, temperature profile and the uh, afternoon flight did just the upper wind profile. And in between we did the three hourly observation program finishing at uh, 9 o'clock at night. You said the morning balloon did a temperature profile. How was that information recorded or, or transmitted or what was the process? 
the um, we used a radio sonde and the sonde sent back signals and produced a trace, a manual trace. We had to scale the trace according to criteria and then that was coded up. Uh, we coded levels, pressure, temperature and humidity levels and they went into a, a international format message which was uh, then typed up, sent down to the Radio Shack and the Radio Shack uh, sent it through to, to Australia. And <clears throat> this will resonate with people that have been following the history series as Hubert Wilkins' sort of ambition to get Australia involved in meteorology in Antarctica so that that information would help farmers back on the mainland better prepare for the droughts that he thought were tied to the, the Antarctic weather systems in Antarctica. Is he well known among the Met Service for that connection? Wilkins isn't so much no, well known among the Met Service. I haven't seen him mentioned a lot, but when I went down to Mawson in 75, I lived in Wilkins' hut. And, um, yeah, and there's been a component of meteorology in the Antarctic expeditions ever since the uh, days of Scott and Shackleton recording the data. And you mentioned the afternoon flight was just up a wind, so you're following the balloon with a theodolite to track uh, it? We or? had a theodolite down there, and of course we had a, a little, um, we had a dome on top of a little box that we would be, we would, the theodolite was in this little bot, little uh, enclosed area with a dome, so that if we needed to do visual flights, we could. But we used the radar and a, a target beneath the, a, a alfoil target beneath the balloon to uh, bounce the signals back. So, ah. yeah. But so, in the field, we still had to use the uh, theodolite because I went out to Mount King in the summer of. 75 as the weather observer because we had an aviation program out there so I had to provide the weather reports for the constant monitoring of the weather to, to for, so the radio operator could always tell the, the plane that was operating around the area how things were going you know? and um, yeah the theod and I had to do the upper wind flight uh, twice a day one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And that was just the odd lot flight, yeah. And what sort of heights can you track to using that system? Well, it basically depends on the cloud um, and how strong the upper winds are. If the balloon, if you don't have very much in terms of the upper winds, you, you can track visually up almost to um, 100 millibars. But with Usually what happened is either obscured behind cloud or the winds carry the balloon too far away to visually maintain contact. And we're using hydrogen to fill the balloon and our hydrogen shed was an old uh, life raft. You might remember the life rafts have a covering, survival life raft. Yeah. So you can't fill the balloons up outside because you need a wind-free area. So we're filling only smaller balloons, but inside this uh, life raft and was so that... I had to hold I was lying filling up with hydrogen but lying back inside the life raft holding the walls of the life raft away from the balloon so it could inflate up and the hydrogen shipped down in tanks in bottles yeah, yeah we only had to make the hydrogen at the base you you had a hydrogen generator on base in the early days, you used to use uh, caustic soda and ferrosilicate, and it would be mixed up in a generating cylinder, and then you'd uh, do that each day. But the stuff they used out in the field was bottled gas, yeah. I've been asking people consistently, what's the most inspiring moment that you experienced on the ice, and what's the most harrowing experience you had in your time in Antarctica? Um, most inspiring moment. Um, I, I took the dogs out at the end of 1977. I took the dogs uh, 100 miles west of Mawson across King Edward VIII Gulf to the Emperor Penguin Rookery at Clower Point. Um, that was the highlight of my uh, time in Antarctica. But when I was at, when we were camped 
flower there, I walked up the um, ice. Well, I walked up the ice behind Flower on the plateau, and directly behind where we were camped, there was a valley. In I could see the I saw this from the map, and I walked up there, and then the, what I saw was there was a, on the other side of the ice valley there was a hanging glacier. So, I mean, I've, that's only one thing I've ever seen. I only seen that once, and I found that to be an inspiring sight. But I couldn't. The other side of the ridge started to slope down and it was just all ice so I couldn't keep going down the other side of the ridge very much because if I lost traction I wouldn't stop and I, I didn't have an ice axe with me so I had to be a bit careful. And the most harrowing moment, um, once at Mawson during a blizzard I momentarily got, uh, I lost myself between the huts. But it was only momentarily, but the harrowing aspect of it was that when you realise what had happened, I actually felt this deep sense of dread come up inside me. And that's the only time I felt anything like that. But it wasn't that serious because I was surrounded by huts and as soon as there was a break in the drift, I knew where I was. Uh, the only other thing that happened was out on the ice sometimes there's a split in the ice and a couple of times I've been walking along and you you, um, you actually see that behind you one of your footprints has dropped away because you've walked over a crusted split in the ice. So there's a certain amount of luck involved. And working with dog teams is just, it's such a a romanticised aspect of Antarctic heritage but I don't have that experience and I've spoken to so many people this week and it's it sounds like it's not been romanticised over much it actually was an incredible aspect of, of people's experience of Antarctica well it, it, it was a romantic scientist uh, romantic experience for all of us because we relate to the early stories I suppose so it's it was an opportunity in the modern age to experience something back at the basic level. Um, the main prerequisite is that, that you just want to, you, you don't mind spending time with the dogs. Um, it, it can be hard work depending on uh, the conditions. In 77, we used skis beside the sledge because you have a tow rope from the front of the sledge back to the handlebars and if you had a pair of uh, cross-country skis on, you could actually slide and glide along beside the um, sledge. And uh, I found it was very much more energy efficient because I took them off one time and was just walking along the, beside the sledge and you found that you lifting your feet instead of being able to slide them along, it was much more energy intensive rather than being on the skis. And um, but the romantic element would probably disappear and re quickly and be replaced by fear if you're in a really bad weather situation, you know, caught in a bad blizzard or something. Are the dogs good at spotting crevasses that you might not be aware of? Are their senses attuned to that? Um, I've never worked up on the plateau, so I don't know. I've heard stories um, that some dogs developed a good sense there was a dog called Jack the Giant Killer who was down with the bird expedition in 35. The dog driver was Stuart Payne and he wrote about him and Jack got a reputation for being able to pick out where the crevasses were. But that reputation, Jack developed that ability after him and his whole team fell down a crevasse and Stuart Payne had to go down on a rope and drag out the whole team. So fortunately no, nothing like that ever happened to me, no. What was the longest that you found yourself pinned down by weather in those situations? I've only been confined by weather for say three days or something and in, in my case it was never really really a big howling blizzard so it wasn't the extreme of extremes. One time in 75 we were out, we were only about 30 miles out from base and we were going to tail a hut 
but we had we stayed on an island for about two days because off the plateau there was a big drift cloud, drift tongue extending off the plateau right out onto the sea ice, and we weren't familiar with that condition. Uh, we were in clear weather, the skies are clear, but I, I've been told by other blokes that right you did the best thing because if you'd went in, what what you've got there is a big tongue of drift snow, and if you go into it, it's just like walking into a blizzard. I'm not, I don't know what the um, physical uh, reasons for the development that are. It must be just funneling of wind or something. In the aftermath of your experiences, you've you've remained active with an Ari club. You've, you're clearly passionate about maintaining the the heritage and the history. Working in the early years after my first couple of trips down into Antarctica, I worked up in the Territory a lot, so that kept me away from the Inari Club. But when I came back to uh, Melbourne in um, 88, I put an application in and went down to Morse again in 93, because that was going to be the last year for the dogs. When I got down to the ice edge in the Aurora Australis at the end of 92, the, the blokes at Mawson, they brought the dogs out to the ship and there was only uh, six old dogs left on base. So when I got onto base, I, I took over looking after the dogs. And um, yes, and that, that kept... That fulfilled. That was my ambition to uh, yeah, be down there for the last of the dogs. And then at the end of 1993, I took the dogs back to the Antarctic Division. Uh, unfortunately, Wealth died during the quarantine period. From what we don't know, he's just found one dead one day in the compound. And uh, two of the dogs, after the one-month quarantine, Mori and Ursa went back to Melbourne with me and lived in Melbourne with me until they passed away in just around 2000. They'd been eight years old when I went down to Mawson and um, Murray died at about 14 and Ursa made 16 before I had to uh, help him along. Did they have trouble coming back to Australia having lived their lives in this fairly um, sterile environment? Did they, did uh, I, they... I was concerned about that. No, they didn't seem to. No, they, they were very curious about things like. I, I started raising money for a husky sculpture, which Ursa was a model for it, and we raised the money for that over three years, and it was unveiled in 1997, which was the 50th anniversary of Anari, and uh, we used to go around with the dogs, and uh, we'd sell a few products and. It took us three years to get the funds together. But we went to a show down in Geelong once and they had some sheep down there. And the boys went up to the edge of the pen staring at the sheep because they really didn't know what they were. No, they were just very curious. What what was the, the breed? Like, Husky's quite a large, large word. Had they come from Greenland stock or...? Primarily from Greenland, yes, because... We're, in the early years, uh, when Phil Law was the director, he hadn't got a permanent base down in Antarctica yet, but he was always thinking ahead. So the French, they they had an expedition, they were trying to get through to Adelie land, but there was unseasonable ice in the summer, so they couldn't get through, so they had to come back. So they, they, they didn't want to uh, take their dogs back to the Northern Hemisphere. So Phil Law arranged for their dogs to be quartered in the Melbourne Zoo, and the French come back next year, took their dogs, and they left us with the, the ones that had been born, left us with a component of dogs. And then um, the Falkland Islands uh, had some dogs down there that, that had came, the, the French dogs had been Greenland dogs. The dogs from Falkland Islands were from Labrador province in Canada. And I'm not sure, but somehow we acquired those dogs from Falkland Islands too, and then the dogs, all of the dogs were taken down to Heard Island in 47 when it was established and bred up on Heard Island and then taken across to Mawson in 54 when it was opened up. That's, 
so they found the Labrador Province dogs when they started working with them at Mawson. They had a longer outer coat and they tended to ice up. So they mostly kept breeding to the Greenland lines because Greenland dogs had a better social aspect, the more family orientated group aspect, easier to manage in their own right, and, and the better coat. But then what happened was that Hillary was planning to do his transantarctic crossing. So Harry Ayres, Hillary's mountain guide, came down to Mawson, took most of our dogs, and they went back on the ship. They offloaded them at Williamstown, took them out to Laverton Airstrip, flew them to, to uh, New Zealand. And then they went down from New Zealand <coughs> down to where uh, with uh, Hillary, who, who was setting up Scott Base as, as a jumping off point for his transantarctic crossing. And I've just found that left us with a nucleus of dogs at Mawson, uh, but, but we then had to build up again. And later, in by the 70s, the dogs were getting to, to suffer from a little bit of inbreeding. They had a little bit, sometimes a bit, the legs were a bit short. But, so that was probably the origin of that problem for us, yeah. The sculptures on the foreshore or the, the quayside in Hobart of uh, Louis Bernacchi yeah. features several huskies. Were they modelled on your dogs? No, no, I don't know where they were modelled on. The only, only um, one that was modelled on one of the Mawson dogs is the sculpture that's in the grounds of the Antarctic Division. And if anybody wanted it to see it, they'd have to go down or ring the Antarctic Division and get permission because you've got to go into the central area of the Antarctic Division. It's, it's open to the public but you probably just have to ask permission. I don't know what the earlier dogs in the early expeditions, where they specifically came from. You, you probably get clues to that by reading the earlier accounts. Um, but when the Americans took dogs down to Wilkes and they were they were a bit bigger, apparently, than our, our Greenland husky type. Yeah. So there's a whole story in the different types, different dog lines that went down there. There's, there's different, as, as you mentioned, there's different personality traits and characteristics to the different breeds. One of the saddest ones I've heard is that there was a Samoyed amongst the dogs that were part of the Ross Sea Party for Shackleton's Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. And while it was a lovely dog, the dogs from other breeds didn't like it and they singled it out for for punishment and it was actually had its throat torn out that that doesn't surprise me because when when we had the problem with genetics getting too close down at Mawson they they acquired a Malmute which is a different type of husky to the Greenland husky and they took him down to uh, Mawson as a breeding sire um, he was all right on the breeding side, but he never turned out to be a um, very good worker in harness. And he suffered from the same problem. He kept, they kept ganging him up on him all the time and giving him a bit of a hiding. Just the outsider. The outsider. And, but even within the, in the Mawson dogs, you had groups which developed and were, const were rather offside with each other. Uh, not necessarily... There were family groups. If you kept the brothers, kept the family groups together, we didn't. We worked the bitches in the team sometimes, but that depended on the individual. The British said the bitches were the better workers, more intelligent to command, but they also said that if you had a team of bitches, you'd got to jump in and stop a fight straight away because they really go to town in a serious way. Um, we found that keeping the brothers together, the brothers would form units within the one team. They'd be working shoulder to shoulder and if anybody and if anybody had a go at them, the whole the brothers would actually sort out the other person. And yeah. It, 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 the thing about being a dogman, you, you just you didn't have to be an expert, you just had to want to spend your time there, you learn by observation. And um, when you first took the dogs out They'd show you where the campsites were. You'd have your map, of course. But they'd start running online to the campsite when you're several kilometres out. I don't know. They must have been able to smell it, of course, the, 
they're, they're over from previous trips or something because most of the campsites are up, they're off the main ice. Yeah, so. So they taught the dog handlers a bit in their own way. And the sleds that you were working, these were the sort of classic Nansen style? Nansen sleds, yeah, they were the Nansen sleds. With yeah. the green eyed lashings and. Yes, yes, they had green eyed lashings. The, when the division moved down to Hobart, that was one of their problems. They had to, it took them a while to source out where to get the green hide or the raw hide it is because if you just you had to soak it before you used it and then you'd, you'd bind them. We had a, you just put a couple of slits in um, one of the raw hide thongs and you just threaded the raw hide thong, thong, tightened it, threaded it through, through the two slits and then it self-tightened when it dried. Because that, the sledges were flexible, they had to flex longitudinally. Because the Nansen sledge is about 14 foot long, so um, they couldn't be bolted together because too much flexing under full load would cause the wood to splinter. Because the, env- the environment's dry down there, you've only got a humidity of about 45%. So we had to put try and get some linseed oil into the uh, wood all the time to keep it to give it some to stop it from splitting yeah keep it supple keep it supple yeah and there were runners that were when we went across king edward the eighth gulf there, there's a choke point in the gulf I, I was lucky it was flat the year i went across but other years i haven't even tried to cross because it's been full of rafted ice and there were two occasions they broke a runner crossing with pressure ridges um and they started taking uh Strips of al- pre-drilled strips of aluminium with them that they could bolt onto the broken runners. Or, but Lars, he was a Danish radio operator. He he'd done two years with the Cirrus Patrol, which is up in uh, eastern Greenland running dogs. So when he broke a runner, he just drilled some holes in the runner. He just used the rawhide to lash it together. So the runner flexed, but the rawhide held. Thank you so much for your time. This has been. Fascinating for me. If you come up with anything else that you want to... Potting it forward. I'm really grateful to those listeners who share the series with their friends. Each episode I publish, the accompanying Facebook post gets shared by a few folks such that it eventually ends up on the radar of several thousand punters. And while the conversion rate for anything on social media is low, that's the sort of advertising I've already demonstrated paying for doesn't achieve for my output. So thanks very much. The audience is gradually growing, and that's an amazingly satisfying phenomenon to experience. Thanks again. On the matter of potting it forward, and I'm going to provide it in a very roundabout manner. When my son was two, almost three years old, and still receiving his nightly bathe in a baby tub, I taught him to say Archimedes' principle every time the water overtopped the tub rim. You'd lower this wriggling toddler into the tub and his volume would displace enough water that it would spill. He'd beam this huge grin and shout the phrase joyously, Archimedes Principle. This training was entirely geared to make a one-off joke that would only make sense to my father. When I was four, Dad taught me the phrase entomological cartographer in order to stump my grandmother when she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. Dad saw the phrase in the job advertisements in the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organization's internal news, and it tickled him no end that the role of insect mapper existed, and that enough people fit the mould that the CSIRO could advertise in their newsletter and expect a candidate with five years' experience to arise from the readership. The phrase stayed with him, and he taught it to me to bug his mother, who was socially ambitious to the point that she may have robbed the family of any of the present credibility that arises from the stain of a convict past by rewriting the family history from whole cloth, claiming our ancestors were master farriers in Scotland, making swords to the nobility, which would explain why George MacArthur came to the Victorian goldfields and started baking bread. She duly asked the question and I duly gave the baffling answer and Dad duly got his laugh. I got my laugh when Dad lowered his grandson into the baby bathing tub, accurately taxonomised by the two-year-old. Dad thought it was pretty cool too, where entomological cartographer just left my grandmother stumped. Dad felt a little disquieted when, at the age of 20, 
I showed him some taxonomic diagrams I made using a camera lucida attached to the microscope I used to examine the isopods passed my way in my volunteer role at the Crustacea Lab of the Museum of Victoria. While the isopods are distinct from the insects, what with having gills, two pairs of antennae and 19 tagmata, they were close enough to their fellow arthropodal insects and the diagrams sufficiently cartographic in their nature that he worried that his ribbing of his mum set in train a career I might otherwise not have chosen. I told him not to worry and got the images printed on a t-shirt that went on to confuse almost everyone who saw me getting about with sirolids mapped over my chest like jagged, multi-limbed breasts for the three years it generally takes a t-shirt to disintegrate while in my care. At the time, the Crustacea Lab employed a talented taxonomic artist, Kate Thompson, the sort of person who could apply for and land a job as an entomological cartographer. I learnt a lot from her, though not enough to ever receive payment for my efforts at the camera lucida. While browsing for music at a go-go records one afternoon, the pay from my first museum contract burning a hole in my pocket, a CD cover featuring a sextant caught my eye, as it would. An EP called The Answer to Both Your Questions by a band called Something for Kate. I bought it, figuring I would leave it on Kate's desk and cause her some dad levels of confusion, but this plan fell apart when I got home and gave the CD a listen. Something for Kate became and remain my favourite band, what with straitjacket fits breaking up in 1994 and the Beatles being half dead, and Kate never received her confusing one-off laugh present, which still resides on my shelves. Earlier this year, I attended a show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, a live recording of a podcast called I Love Green Guide Letters, with Matt Koopman, whose high awesome quotient I've mentioned several times in this series. I was wearing an iced coffee t-shirt I made at home with my limited talent in screen printing and a large serve of bloody-mindedness, and it caught the host, Steel Saunders, eye, perhaps because he's something of a t-shirt connoisseur. He asked me about it and we had a brief discussion about this podcast before he introduced the guests for the show, which included Paul Dempsey of Something for Kate, with whom he went to school. In the preamble to discussing the letters to the Age Newspaper's TV liftout, The Green Guide, from which the podcast derives its name and its comedic theme, Steele Saunders and Paul Dempsey discussed a poignant moment in their long friendship. The musician once asked the comedian what his band should name their EP and what they should put on the cover. Steele's response, the answer to both your questions, is porn. Paul Dempsey opted instead for the sextant image that caught my eye, but Steel Saunders' answer gave him the EP's title. You can hear all of this play out in episode 269 of I Love Green Guide Letters. I didn't expect my discussion about iced coffee to make the cut, but Steele not only kept it in the episode, he did his best to boost my side of the dialogue so people could hear about my podcast, because he's really big on podcasting and took that opportunity to boost my signal. I love my amateur screen printing efforts, but I've never been happier with them than at that gig, and I'm eager to pay Steele back the favour by recommending that Ice Coffee listeners give I Love Green Guide Letters a go. When Coops first described it to me, he made sure I knew that it was a hard podcast to describe, but he assured me I'd get a good laugh from comedians discussing the whiny letters that people send to that particular newspaper. And he was correct. I once described it as a life support system for a cat, but I went well off the rails with the surrealist monologue from there, so it wasn't helpful to anyone, though the bit about the cat is technically true. Give it a go. Regular mentions of his love for Star Wars during I Love Green Guide Letters episodes led me to give Steel Saunders' Steel Wars podcast a go, and that was another boon in my podcast consumption. That series rekindled my long-dormant childhood love of the franchise and got me excited about the new movies. The episodes in the lead-up to the release of The Force Awakens capture some amazing Kid on Christmas Eve vibes among people long out of their teens, and the excitement of the listenership when Steele got to interview Harrison Ford was some energising stuff to feel a part of. Whether he's interviewing actors, puppeteers, animators, or his mum, Steele's output is all that's great about podcasting, and I cannot recommend him making his shows part of your rotation enough. Passion, compassion, and a Persian cat called Jerry. 
You could do a lot worse, and it's hard to do much better. Thanks, Steele, for holding on to the love of Star Wars during extended periods of hate and trollery, for making Coops and I laugh ourselves stupid while listening to your shows and at your live events, and for potting me forward. There's a small but awesome set intersect between people who listen to your content and this series, and I look forward to buying them a coffee at the next Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'd actually meant to speak about the podcasts I love at episode 50. I wrote some notes for an episode coda called Last Night a Podcast Changed My Life, but it ended up extremely lengthy. Seeing as I've paid for the deluxe hosting plan this month, I'll give you the condensed version. The Geologic Podcast I've learnt more about music from five years listening to George Schraub's podcast than I did in the previous 40. Funny, perceptive and intimate. Vibraphone. Stuff you missed in history class. I tried to keep my selection down to people who kicked off as amateur podcasters, even if they later made it their full-time job. But stuff you missed in history class is too classy to leave out, even if it does arrive from the How Stuff Works publishing empire. The hosts have changed over the years, and it always seems that the current hosts are always my favourites. But the actual current hosts are my favourites. The series is an ever-expanding goldmine of well-researched and presented information about lesser-known events or people who deserve the attention that our schools don't have the time or resources to cover, or who are written out of a nation's stories through bigotry or incompetence. Cognitive Dissonance I already gave Cecil and Tom props early in this series, but I owe Cecil a bigger debt than that mention accounts. He took the time to respond to a query about the nuts and bolts of podcasting that formed the basis of my own efforts, and even though the scale of what became Glory Hole Studios was far smaller then than it is now, that took effort and consideration I'd done nothing to earn. Cecil and Tom play dumb, but they're whip smart and they give bad ideas the kicking they deserve while managing to make me laugh about the state of things. And their previous series, Everyone's a Critic, gave me a new vocabulary for thinking about cinema. They also contribute to Citation Needed with members of the Puzzle in a Thunderstorm team, whose output is also worth following up for political analysis, social insights and dick jokes. The Inciting Incident is another social issue series and while Marissa and the various co-hosts can make me laugh, there's a lot of first-hand experience recounted in this podcast that can make it an uncomfortable listen. I listen to the inciting incident because it's important to face those uncomfortable stories, learn from them, and work out where you draw your line in the sand regarding them. Marissa is wicked smart and has more degrees than I have limbs, so it's harsh for her that so much of her time is dedicated to discussing transphobia, but that's where the world's at. Maybe one day the issues she confronts won't need such vigorous pushback and she can spend more time talking about her interests and expertise. But this podcast is exactly what it needs to be at the present time. I'm also grateful to Marissa and Bethany for hosting me in episode 139, wherein I recounted the experiences among Australian secular organisations that dented my mental health over the past five years. Opening Arguments a real-life lawyer and an inquisitive interviewer discuss contemporary issues in the context of the legal framework of the USA. Superb. Informative, motivational and funny. As with the inciting incident, there's a lot this series has to cover that can be downright dirgeful, but the passion and the resolute mean of the hosts to do their bit in pushing back against present levels of bigotry and intolerance is inspiring. And there's a lot more. I already gave my grateful praise to The History of Rome for seeding the idea of this series, and now there's Empty Frames and Celador Skeptics and Everything is Alive, calling for my attention. You already know that podcasts are the goods. Pod your favourites forward. Start your own. Narrowcasting is fun, and if you're not kicking over beehives, as my other series attempts, it can be a hub for like-minded people you otherwise wouldn't cross paths with. Take care and appreciate your coffee.